Before we read the scriptures this morning, let me share a few thoughts with you, if I can. It was almost 30 years ago, and I'll never forget the experience that I had. I held his hand as he was dying. I read the Psalms aloud, lots of them, for hours. I think I recall reading 2 Corinthians 5, 1 and following. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Did you hear that? what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You see, he had only been a Christian in three or four years. Just a short while. I saw him breathe his last breath then slip into the hands of the Savior. It was early morning, and I can remember walking down the, the cold hallways of the hospital. And as a pastor, I had already preached the resurrection and preached sermons on Easter Sunday and, and had that experience as a young pastor. And uh, I had declared often that Jesus is the one who saves us, that he saves our souls. But he is the one who changes us. But now that my father's lifeless body lay before me, I will tell you, the promise of the resurrection took on a new meaning. Took on a slightly more important meaning than anything I'd ever experienced in my life to that point. You see, Paul tells us in this chapter in Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us death is the last enemy. He so vividly speaks to us when, when those who are close to us breathe their last breath. Jesus, looking at several days old corpse of Lazarus, what does he say? He, he says... To his friend, he, he looks at his friend Lazarus, who, and he wept bitterly, and he was visibly angry. The scriptures say Jesus wept. It broke his heart. It touched him in his core. Death is indeed the last enemy, because the promise of the future resurrection, we as believers can can sometimes trivialize death though we want to to make death easier to cope with and so we we try to we try to just pass by it we try to get beyond it um, we try to to make death less than what it is 
but like Jesus. Jesus conquered the grave. Jesus is the one who overcame death, but death is still Satan's work in this world until Jesus comes again. And Jesus was angry, and we should be too. But your anger can turn to hope, and that's why Easter matters. That's why what we celebrate today matters. The risen Christ has overcome the last enemy, death itself. On Easter, we celebrate the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead. Think about the reality of that. When he conquered the grave, he proved beyond doubt that God was satisfied with his atonement, with his provision for our sin, that he was indeed the second person of the Trinity, that he was God's beloved son who was brought back to life. We who believe and who repent are reconciled to our creator because of what Jesus has done on this day. Our souls are no longer lost and in danger of facing judgment. But you know, as we were singing this morning and, and as I've thought about the resurrection and I've thought about Resurrection Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus doesn't just mean that our souls will be saved. Do you realize that? Because Jesus lives, we too shall live body and soul. You look at the hymns we sang this morning. We talk about our souls being united with Christ and, 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 and about our, the fact that we will be in heaven with him, but we don't talk about our, our resurrection bodies very much. You know what? The Apostle Paul takes some time to help the Corinthians think about what the resurrection body would be like. And this morning as we come to these paragraphs in, in chapter 15 of, of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, Paul talks about the resurrection body. You know, as I stood there with my 62-year-old father, I was reminded of the fact that I'll be reunited with him again. And it will not just be his soul and my soul that are reunited. I was thinking about that, and, and think about it. John the Baptist, who lost his head but kept his courage, will be in heaven with a resurrection body. Lazarus, who rose once only to die again, will be there in a resurrection body permanently because Jesus' victory over death is fully realized. You see, when we talk about the resurrection, we talk about something that is so contrary to the world that we know that it's almost outside of our categories. It's almost overwhelming. Easter means that the suffering and the decay that you and I endure in our bodies from the, the instant uh, that we are born, the tiniest aches the, the, to the biggest, most gruesome and painful suffering, all of that is only temporary. This is only a shadow of what will be. Oh, but we forget that, don't we? We lose sight of the fact that this is only temporary. This isn't the permanent. This is not the eternal. We have the promise of Jesus of eternal life. We often forget his promise. We souls alienated from God rightly proclaim that humankind's greatest needs are spiritual. And I think that we should not neglect the importance of the physical promises of Easter. 
there are some very real physical promises about the resurrection. Jesus came to rescue both body and soul. His incarnation ratifies God's love for these things, for flesh and blood. Now, thank God that our bodies in heaven are not going to be like our bodies on earth. I thank God that yours aren't either. <laughs> but Paul goes to great lengths so that we see the whole picture. Body and soul. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. The Corinthians needed to know these things, and so do you and I. We need to remember God's love for our bodies and for the reality that the resurrection promises about the way our bodies will be redeemed. So follow with me, if you will. Listen to Paul's words. These are the words that are the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. These are the words that are the truth. These are the words that speak to us where we need the most today. And so I'm going to read verses 35 through 49 of chapter 15 from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 to 49. Let us give careful attention to the reading and to the hearing of the word of God. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do you come? Or do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps, of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory." So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also are those who are of the dust, and as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let me pray. 
Oh, Holy Spirit, we need your gracious work in our hearts this morning to understand and to receive and to appropriate for ourselves the living word. Oh, Lord Jesus, would you grant that your spirit would open our eyes and our hearts to understand what you're saying to us here. Oh, Father, that these words would would have life in them, that indeed the the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, the life-giving breath that your Holy Spirit brings would grant resurrection power in our hearts today. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to worship you, Heavenly Father. Help us to rest in the promises of you, Holy Spirit. Oh, Holy Trinity, do your work of grace through the power of the word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The common man in Paul's day thought that uh, uh, just much like we do today, uh, he, he was skeptical about the truth of the resurrection. The common man was, was just had questions about the resurrection. They weren't sure. They, they, they wondered about what it actually meant. And, and uh, Paul goes to the heart of the skeptic's question here in our text this morning. He brings up their two questions, actually. He, he raises their questions, and he, he addresses those questions straight out today, this morning. The first question is, how are the dead raised? Hey, that is a great question. I think that we ought to be asking that question ourselves. How are the dead raised? Question focused on the, for the Corinthians and, and for many in our day and time today on the seemingly impossibility of, of decaying, disintegrating bodies being raised up. Of, of these fleshly tents that we live in, that break down and that decay over age and with time, how can that be raised up? What about those people who have been in the grave for thousands of years? What about those bodies of, of people who were devoured and digested by beasts? How can those bodies be raised from the dead? Those are just some of the possibilities the Corinthians had in mind when they asked the question, how are the dead raised? The question still is asked today. Resurrection skeptics today wonder, how is it possible for a body that was blown up by an IED explosion, how can it ever be brought back? And the second question is kind of like that question. The second question that Paul addresses straight on is, what kind of body do they come back with? What does it look like? Is it a material body? Is it a, is it a spiritual body? What, what is the body like? What kind of body would come out of the grave? The, whatever kind of body it was for the Corinthians, it was inconceivable. How, how do you figure it out? We know that man's body decays. We know that we return to dust. What kind of body will it be? As far as the skeptics were concerned, the difficulty with those questions proved decisively, proved without a doubt that the whole idea of resurrection was absurd. If you can't answer those two questions, then obviously the resurrection is absurd. How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come with? For Paul, 
the perplexities that are associated with the resurrection was not a reason to dismiss it. And I love the Apostle Paul. He doesn't deny the complexity of the subject. He makes it clear that the problems are no, by no means insurmountable. He goes straight to the heart of the matter. So Paul's first words to us who live in this modern, educated, intellectual world today and to the Corinthians who lived in the first century was, your skepticism is foolish. <laughs> you foolish person, quote, end quote. Paul says you're not thinking clearly. You're not thinking with accuracy. You are not using the intellect that God has given you. Your skepticism is foolish. I love the way he doesn't miss word. He doesn't praise the doubters for their contributions to the ongoing discussions about the resurrection. He doesn't... He commend them for being sensitive to the intellectual needs of the society in which they live. He doesn't do that. He goes straight to the juggler. He says, you are foolish in your thinking. Now, Paul didn't do that in a hateful way. He didn't do that in, in, a, in a mean way. I probably would have done it in a mean way. I probably would have said, you're just stupid, aren't you? I don't think that's really right. Paul doesn't have a hateful or a malicious disposition. He did want to wake them up, though. He wanted to wake them up to the reality of their situation. The Corinthians were very proud of their intellectual abilities. They were very proud of who they were. And they assumed that the resurrection was totally unlike anything else that they were familiar with, and therefore it couldn't possibly have happened. I mean, that's the bottom line. They could not have done that. They're kind of like the materialist of our day. If it can't be proven, then it just can't be true. You know, we, we, we live and die by the scientific method, don't we? If, if you can't reproduce the experiment, then it's not valid. Paul calls them foolish. Paul gives us an analogy from the natural world that's absolutely undeniable, though, doesn't he? Look at what he does. I, I love this. He, he just takes them to the most simple of illustrations and explains to them what the resurrection is all about. All they had to do was to see the principle of the resurrection was to see that life comes out of death on a regular basis. Every time you plant a seed... Well, not every time, because I've proven that's wrong. <laughs> the seed goes into the ground, and it decays. It dies. And then life comes from it, and it springs forth in a beautiful plant. Job took note of that in the, the very same thing, and he said this in Job 14. He said, for there's hope for a tree, if it's cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its tender shoots will not cease. We had this drake elm that we planted in our yard several years ago, and we irrigated it, and we water it, and we take care of it. We'd done everything that we could for it. But the darn thing, first it started to lean, and, and, and you know, so the root ball is kind of not right. I could never get it staked up right, and it finally just died. And so after the last freeze that we had, 
I was trimming out all the other stuff in my yard that I had managed to kill or that we had let, let neglect, you know, let die. And so I took the saw and whacked it off at the root. You know what happened? All kinds of new green growth has appeared on that Drake Elm. Now I'm undecided. Am I going to yank that thing out by the roots or am I going to whack it again and see what happens? I don't know. But Paul takes that principle. He takes that very idea. Job understood that principle from way back in time. Jesus mentions the same principle too, by the way. Jesus says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. In other words, that seed, that, that piece of wheat in the seed bag will not germinate, will not do anything, will not come back to life until it's planted in the ground. And when it's planted in the ground, Jesus says, if it dies, it produces grain. John chapter uh, 12. The intellectual, proud Corinthians had walked right by the principle of the resurrection on the way to church where they were scoffing at it. It was all around them. They were fools on another count as well, though. They paid lip service to the power of God in other areas of life and the world, but they had completely left it out of the question of the matter of the resurrection. They could see that God was a powerful God, but they didn't put one and two together. I think that we don't realize sometimes the implications of our belief and our theology when when we deny the reality of creation that god created the world and we adopt the the philosophy of evolution when we when we deny creation and adopt evolution we've made a major mistake we've made a major error and that's kind of what was happening here in corinth If you don't believe the truth that God created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing, then how do you explain nature except in a mechanical, mechanistic kind of way? And if you even go to the extreme of saying, well, we can explain nature in a mechanistic way, how do you explain the diversity of all of creation? It just doesn't work. It just will not come together that way. It is intellectually impossible. We as believers need to correctly understand that God is the creator, and because he's creator, he has the power to do what he wants to do. Paul argues correctly that nature functions as it does because there is a powerful God who is in charge. And that's why the resurrection was able to happen. Jesus' resurrection wasn't out of a principle of of a mechanistic kind of view of of life in this world. It was because the power of God came to dwell. It was because God chose to raise Jesus from the dead. God made all kinds of different seeds, Paul says. He decided the plants would come out of dead, decaying seeds. He created the human body, as well as bodies of animals and fish and birds. And Paul goes to list those things here. He says, and and if looking at those earthly bodies doesn't convince you of God's might and his power, then all you have to do is look up to the heavenly bodies. Look up at the sky, look at the stars, look at the moon. 
By the way, did you guys see the moon Thursday night? Oh, it was gorgeous. How could you have looked at that and not say, indeed, there is a creator God who sustains and ordains all things? It is a beautiful picture of God's power. The only logical explanation is to say it all came from the hand of a powerful creator God. The skeptics in, in Corinth were, were in a ridiculous position of acknowledging that God had, in mighty power, created all the creation around them, but they were denying his power when it came to the reality of the resurrection. I want to make fun of them because of their intellectual schizophrenia. But you and I do the same thing all the time, just in different areas. Maybe in this area too, I don't know. It's one thing to believe the power of God at one point, and then to pass by it in another point. Maybe the practical application of that is, it comes like this. We believe that God is powerful enough to save us as believers in Christ, right? We, we believe that we are secure and that we have been saved by Jesus Christ. But then we try to hold ourselves in salvation by our own efforts, by our own good works. We try, to, we try to keep ourselves holding on when it's really that God is holding us. We aren't holding him. We walk right past his sovereign power sometimes. So Jesus emphasized the power of God in the resurrection you know, he did, it, he did it in his debate with the Sadducees. The Sadducees, you know, they were, we've heard this a thousand times, they were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection, okay? They didn't believe in the, and, and the Sadducees loved to debate, and they loved to, to nitpick, and they loved to come up with, with uh, little uh, uh, quips and, and uh, statements and that kind of thing. Resurrection riddles is what I call them. Okay, they like to do that, and so they had uh, they, they they had been picking on those who believed in the resurrection. And one day they decided to try out one of their resurrection riddles on Jesus. That was a bad move to begin with, but they were Sadducees and they wanted to prove their point, and so they they tried this riddle on Jesus. The riddle had to do with seven brothers. You know it. The first brother married a woman and he died. He left her, and according to uh, Jewish law, the law provided that the next brother would become her husband, and, and he also died, leaving her to the next, and so it went seven times. I feel sorry for the woman. And the Sadducees put the question to Jesus this way. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? And you know what they're thinking under their, you know, in the back of their minds. They're thinking, aha, we gotcha. And Jesus doesn't even hesitate as I read the, the Gospel of Mark. Jesus doesn't even take a breath before he replies. And listen to his reply. He says, uh, therefore the resurrection, uh, whose wife will she be? And he says, are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. In other words, you guys who claim to be religious, who claim to be uh, the leaders of Israel, who claim to be uh, the theologians of your day, do you not even know the power of God? 
God can do what he wills. You don't understand the nature of the heavenly resurrection, of the heavenly body. The Sadducees never realized that the God who created everything that exists is capable of creating a whole new order in which the difficulties and the complexities of this life hold no sway. They just don't matter. So how does Paul answer the question of how the dead are raised? He simply leaves it in the powerful hands of the same God who made all things, including plants and that come out of dead seeds. Paul just leaves the argument. So let's talk about the nature of the resurrection body for just a moment. What is the nature of the resurrection body? The other issue for some of those non-believers in Corinth is that they were rejecting the idea of the resurrection because a resurrection body was outside of their perceptual framework. It was inconceivable to them. They couldn't, they couldn't fathom what a resurrection body would be like. They couldn't visualize it, and they thought because they couldn't picture it, it just can't be real. That's our world today. Not much has changed in a couple thousand years. Okay? We're still pretty much like that. So what does Paul have to say to them about the resurrection body? He takes, it, he takes them to task from verses 42 to 49. And the first point that he makes there is that the resurrected body will be vastly superior to the bodies that we now have. What a great relief that is. It is apparent in these verses that Paul still has the analogy of the seed and um, uh, the plant in mind. He compares our physical bodies uh, to the seed that dies and decays in the ground and the resurrected body to the plant that springs up, okay? So he says there's a change in nature there. It's, and he uses a series of contrasts here uh, to talk about the resurrection body being superior um, uh, as the body is, the plant is to the seed superior. Paul takes them apart here. He says in verse 42, this body is sown in It's subject to decay and deterioration. The body that was raised from the grave, on the other hand, is incorruptible. One is corruptible, one decays, one is incorruptible. Two different natures, it will never perish or decay. The body is sown in honor, verse 43. Hey, we try to make death look attractive we try, we try to make death less harsh, but I want to tell you something. Those efforts are vain. Death is a hard thing. Death is an awful thing. There is nothing attractive about death. And dying with dignity, that's a popular phrase today, but there is no dignity in death. There's nothing honorable or dignified in death. Thank God that the resurrection and the resurrected body will be different. Dishonor will be gone, and the new body will be clothed in glory and in splendor. Paul goes on, he says, the body is sown in weakness, verse 43. We know he's right. There is very little power in these physical bodies of ours, isn't there? Don't you long for more power because you know you need it, for more strength, for more stamina, for more endurance, for more ability, whether it's intellectual or physical, whatever it is, and there's absolutely no power at all when death comes. 
The resurrected body, however, will not lack power. The resurrected body will not be lacking in what it needs. All limitations will be gone. The power will be just as characteristic of the resurrected body as weakness is to this earthly body. And that's what Paul argues here in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what he says about our resurrected bodies. Interesting. Finally, Paul says that the body is natural, verse 44. It's made for this natural realm and is ideally suited to it, but in the next world, it is in an entirely different order. It's a spiritual world, uh, and to live there, we have to have a spiritual body. Needless to say, the resurrected body will be ideally suited for the spiritual world. Not only will the resurrected body be superior, uh, it will be modeled after Christ's resurrection body. All right, think about what we know about Christ after he came from the tomb. Think about what he was like. Space and time couldn't contain him anymore. He could be in a crowd of people and be unrecognized until he chose to reveal himself to those who were there. Just think about, just for a minute, the difference in the spiritual body of Jesus Christ and the physical body of Jesus Christ. He was our physical, Adam was our physical prototype. Jesus is our spiritual prototype. And that's Paul's argument here in 45 to 49. Paul says in, in verses 45 to 49 that, that the, he reminds us that we have two representative heads. We've talked about this a gazillion times, and I know you, you've heard this before. There is the first Adam who was married to Eve, okay? The first Adam of creation. And we all receive, Paul's argument goes, our physical bodies from Adam. We are, we are his descendants. We have, we have Adam's DNA in us, the first man uh, and we have a, a physical, corruptible body, body after the pattern of Adam's fallen, physical, corruptive body. He's our physical prototype. Not because he had the power to give life, but simply because God called him, made him the physical head of the human race. It is his DNA that is the, what do they call the... Uh, when you make bread and you keep the yeast in the, he's a starter loaf. Does that make sense? But the second Adam, and, and I love the fact that Paul doesn't use the term second Adam here. What does Paul call Jesus here in the text? He calls him the last Adam. The last Adam. I think really important. I think Paul is very very delivered. I think the Holy Spirit had a purpose in that. The last Adam, verse 45, Christ is the last Adam and there will never be another representative head. There will never be another uh, like Adam in, uh, of the garden. Just like every man who's ever lived has received his physical body from the pattern of Adam, so everyone who belongs to Christ will receive his new body after the pattern of Jesus. That's some of the most important truth that Paul puts before the Corinthians and to us in this text today. 
Every man who has ever lived has Adam's pattern. Every man who is born again has Christ's pattern. Leon Morris put it this way, just as throughout this life we have habitually borne the form of Adam, so in the life to come we shall bear that of our Lord. We come down to this with the text this morning, just, just this, basically. The question I think each one of us needs to answer is whether or not we're connected to Jesus Christ. We're all connected by nature to Adam. Paul's proven that, we know that. There's no doubt about that, but not all, not all are connected to Christ. How do we become connected to Christ, who's heading up the new race of spiritual people? How do we become connected to Christ, who is the one who grants the resurrection body? If that's your question, then there's some good news here in our text. The Bible says that Christ has already done everything. He did it. It's done. It's complete. It is finished. It is total. It is, it is a finished work. Everything that's necessary for sinners to be connected. All that remains is for us, for you and for me, to turn from our sins, to place our faith and our trust in Jesus' completed work, to rest in what he did, and we're forgiven and we're saved. The gospel is so simple that my children, when they were four and five years old, could understand it. And the gospel is so simple that my 62-year-old father came to faith in Christ three or four years before he died. We need to understand that reality. Once we're connected with Christ, we will be able to say with the Apostle John, we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Oh, the promise of Easter is the promise of the resurrection. And the promise of the resurrection is that our souls and our bodies are reunited because of the finished work of our Savior. That's reason for worship. That's reason for uh, the best that we have to offer to God. Let me lead us in prayer as we uh, draw our service toward a close. Heavenly Father, I ask you this day that the power of the resurrection would be more certain and more sure in our hearts and in our lives that we would indeed understand the gospel that changes us out of, out of a dead seed into a living plant. That we would understand the realities that Jesus has purchased for us that we may be redeemed. That we would be your very own adopted sons and daughters. Oh Father, may we revel in your mercy and in your grace, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.